every once in a while, a movie comes out that changes everything. In 1975, that movie was Jaws. I know this might sound a little ridiculous considering that Jaws is still, over 45 years later, such a highly regarded picture. But I think the enormity that was Jaws in 1975 gets a little overlooked. When it opened in wide release, something that was practically unheard of at the time, it had the highest grossing weekend of all time, $7 million. In 10 days, that total was up to $21 million. And two and a half months after it opened, it flew past The Godfather as the highest grossing picture of all time in North America. It was the first picture to gross $100 million. Since then, there have been sequels, documentaries, games, theme park rides, and even something called Jaws Fest. But perhaps the true measure of success of Jaws is how the industry reacted to it. They ripped it off. And there's a lot of Jaws ripoffs out there. So many, in fact, it's got its own subgenre known as Jaws Exploitation. There's movies like Out of the Water, Trained to Kill, and Hungry for Blood. Here comes Mako, Jaws of Death. Mako, the Jaws of Death from 1976, which was also about a killer shark. And then there's 1977's Orca, the Killer Whale. An innocent creature is destroyed by an act of human cruelty, and the ultimate battle of man against nature begins. And you can't forget Piranha, which Jaws director Steven Spielberg says is the best of the ripoffs, in case you're interested. Water. You can drink it. You can swim in it. And if you're not careful, you can die in it. Piranha. Piranha. The deadliest flesh eaters of all. Their razor teeth can strip a man to bone. And of course, who could ever forget tentacles? Ocean Beach has attracted something else. American International presents tentacles. It slept until man disturbed it. Then it woke with a fury no man could control. Tentacles, a giant octopus. Which features Henry Fonda, Shelley Winters, a killer whale, and a giant octopus. I could go on. But the thing is... A lot of these ripoffs made money. They were made cheap, usually for less than a million dollars, and then would grow somewhere between 10 and 15 million. This brings us to one of the more successful pictures in the jaw exploitation genre, the Jaws with Claws feature, Grizzly. You are listening to the most massive carnivorous ground beast in the world. Over 2,000 pounds and 18 feet of gut crunching, man eating terror. By its size alone, it can overpower and devour any human. The deadliest jaws on land belong to Grizzly, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Grizzly, about a bear terrorizing people at a national park, was made for about $750,000, but pulled in a very impressive $38 million worldwide. And when you make a profit like that, one thing is usually inevitable. A sequel. Screenwriter David Sheldon, along with his wife, writer and actor Joan McCall, came up with the story for the follow-up. The story was about a mama bear whose baby bear gets poached by some hunters. This sets off the mama grizzly on a kill-crazy rampage through the woods, eating tourists and park rangers, and ends with the bear attacking a giant outdoor concert. 
Sheldon saw Grizzly 2 as his opportunity to go from screenwriter to director. William Girdler, the director of Grizzly, had died in a helicopter accident in 1978. Ed Montero, the producer of Grizzly, agreed he would let Sheldon direct. But Montero couldn't get the funding, and his option on Sheldon's script for Grizzly 2 ran out. The script was then bought by a different producer, Joseph Ford Proctor. At this point, Proctor had only produced one movie. And once he took over, he very quietly pushed David Sheldon out of the production. Sheldon had already worked on getting the movie's cast and crew ready to go and was shocked when he found out that he was being replaced by a director named Andre Jatz. When I reached out to Sheldon, he responded with this. I had nothing to do with the making of the hideous Grizzly 2. Joan and I wrote a good screenplay and sold it for big bucks. He then wished me luck in the making of this episode, and I completely understand him not wanting to talk about Grizzly 2. He likely feels robbed of his chance to direct, and he's probably right. But in the end, it might have been better to get out of the Grizzly 2 business, because the length of that production lasted for decades. My name is Dan Delgado, and in this episode, we're taking a look at a movie that started production in the early 1980s and wouldn't be released until 2020. Welcome to the industry. So what happened is I was quite well known. I was going to LA a lot, back and forth from from New York. And then I got a telephone call from uh, Chicago uh, by a guy called uh, Joseph Proctor. This is Suzanne Nagy. In the early 1980s, she was a representative for the Hungarian film industry. If you were an American independent film producer, Suzanne would let you know that Hungary was a great place to make a picture. Yes, it was a communist country behind the Iron Curtain, but it had plenty to offer Western filmmakers. And the job was great. But the Hungarians forgot to pay me. Since getting paid is fairly important, Suzanne decided to pivot. She'd go independent, still convincing people to film in Hungary and putting together the -the below-the-line crew, finding filming locations to use, things like that. And that's when she gets a call from Joseph Ford Proctor. Proctor, you may remember, is the producer who bought the Grizzly 2 script and pushed screenwriter David Sheldon out of the director's chair and off the movie entirely. When Proctor calls Suzanne, he has an idea. He wants to make pictures in Hungary, and he has three potential scripts to choose from, and he wants Suzanne to pick the first script they're going to produce together. And he gave me the three uh, script, and I read the Grizzly uh, first, and I said to myself, wow, this is a real complicated movie. I want to do this first. In case you were wondering, the other two scripts were Children of the Corn, a Stephen King adaptation that was eventually made by someone else and released in 1984, and The Doctor and the Devils, which was also eventually made by someone else and released in 1986. First, number one, I have to make a big live concert. Uh, a Woodstock genre concert, uh, never been done in uh, the Eastern European country. I said, this is something I can fight for it and get it done. And also the Big Bear, 
and all of that stuff was so fabulous. Uh, the idea, I said, I really can do this. Suzanne gets the cast and crew over to Hungary and ready to roll. The first thing they shot was the big event for the entire picture, a giant Coachella-style festival that the crazed bear will eventually crash. Keep in mind that Hungary, still a communist country, so a concert like this over there was a first for them. And Suzanne had the task of lining up the bands. Two of the band was designed only for the film. And then uh, there was a couple of Hungarian band and um, one French band and others. And the big deal was Nazareth. Nazareth, in case you don't know, is best known for the hit Love Hurts. Nazareth was the English band who was extremely well known and a big ticket. So a lot of the uh, Western countries came. We got 50,000 people for the concert. So it was fabulous. That's right. She said 50,000 people showed up for the concert. And the concert itself went off without a hitch. No alcohol was served, so maybe that's one reason. But everything went well with filming the concert scenes, except for one thing. But the bear, certain part of the bear didn't work, and therefore we couldn't do the... We did the backstage, but we couldn't do the front, which was okay. The bears were mechanical. Suzanne figured they'd pick up those scenes at a later time in the production, so the bear not working wasn't the worst thing that could happen. After all, it was only one day. However, what might be the worst thing then did happen. It's the day after the concert. It's Sunday. Everyone has the day off. And Suzanne is in her hotel with her husband when the phone rings. The telephone was ringing at 12 o'clock. It was Joe, who was uh, uh, not talking to me, was requested my husband to come to the hotel who was not in the film business. And when he came back from Joe, he was all white. And he said, it, the film is finished. Joe is leaving. There is no money for the production. Nothing is going to uh, work anymore. Everybody will, will be sent back. Um, the banker who was sitting there is going to wrap up everything. And we are finished. And I was sitting on the bedside. I wanted to go to sleep originally. And I was so stunned that, first of all, he was so coward not to tell me. Um, second, how could th this happen? How could this happen? That's a great question. And maybe had Suzanne known Joseph Ford Proctor's history, she wouldn't have been so surprised. In the opening of this episode, I mentioned that Joseph Ford Proctor had produced one movie prior to Grizzly 2. And that's true. And it's kind of not true. In the 1970s, Proctor had been known for staging wine and cheese tastings in New York. Then he met Jerry Lewis. Now, Lewis hadn't made a picture since 1970, but Proctor told him that he'd come across a script that Jerry would be perfect for and that he had already raised $3 million to make it. Lewis read the script and agreed to star and direct it. Not only that, but Jerry and Proctor made a deal for not one, but three pictures. The first one was hardly working. 
It's about an unemployed clown who gets a series of jobs and then screws them all up. It's exactly the kind of thing you can imagine Jerry Lewis starring in. The second was called That's Life, which was described as Animal House, but with senior citizens, would star Ruth Gordon and Jerry would direct this. And the third would be a sequel to Hardly Working with the title Hardly Working Attacks Star Wars. Really. Now, Hardly Working filmed in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 1979, and after it wrapped production, Lewis quickly got That's Life ready to go. And that's when the trouble began. The money simply disappeared. And so did Joseph Ford Proctor. And when Jerry learned that the completion bond, which is a standard practice for movie making, had never been filed, Jerry halted filming on That's Life after one week, and it has never been finished. Hardly working still needed the funding to be completed, and Proctor was nowhere to be found. Here's producer Ego Cantor giving an update on Hardly Working to a local news crew in South Florida. The previous producer, Mr. Proctor, did not come up with the money. Simple as that. So all of a sudden we had to stop shooting, unexpectedly, and we had to reorganize, regroup. Mr. Proctor is no longer involved with the film. Uh, Jerry Lewis and I are trying very, very hardly to assemble the funds, and we're just about there. I think by next week we'll resume shooting. Jerry did eventually finish Hardly Working. It was a bust in the United States, but a big hit in Europe. Joseph Ford Proctor, as it turned out, had taken off for Canada. And Jerry began referring to him in the press as Joseph Fraud Proctor. And now, just a few years later, Proctor had run out of money on another production and again left the country. Back in Hungary, Suzanne had problems. But then... Less than two hours later, she got another call. Two o'clock, the telephone is ringing, and the Japanese guy is on the telephone looking for Joe. So I said, Joe is not here, but I'm here. Where are you? In the Hilton Hotel. It was another guy looking to invest in Grizzly 2. And he was downstairs in the hotel already. So Suzanne hurries downstairs to meet him. I sit down with the guy, Japanese uh, open heart surgeon. He says, (laughs) I came to invest in the movie. In this movie, if you can prove to me you had a concert and there is a gigantic bear somewhere and this is really a production, I, I invest in the movie. So I told him, Joe disappeared, I will take you everywhere. He says, okay, if it's really true, I will save you. I will really save you. So I, we go all around, I look, I, I show him everything. Uh, I call the banker, don't pack your stuff. Don't leave. <laughs> and then the guy financed the movie. And Monday we started, we continue like nothing happened. And just like that, Grizzly 2 is back in business. The Japanese investor, who according to Suzanne's, prefers to stay unnamed, invested half a million dollars into the production, which was enough to keep things afloat. And when production started again on Monday, it was like nothing happened. Almost. Because Joseph Proctor was the producer, he was looked at as the man in charge by the crew. And now he's gone, and Suzanne doesn't really want to share that information. So she doesn't. So I had to pretend sometimes I'm talking to him on the telephone, 
So nobody will figure out I am running the whole show and he's not there. And so I was all over the place trying to uh, fix everything. Nobody knew that, you know, I'm doing this alone. And then after like two weeks, everybody slowly find out something is completely wrong in here. If the Hungarian crew finds out that Proctor is gone, then it might be all over. He is the big shot. And then I, I told them what to do as Joe would tell me. But it wasn't Joe. It was me who was telling me. The Hungarians would not take me as a partner. So number one, I, I just left Hungary in 1978. Number two, I'm a woman. And, and this, oh, those days, it was impossible that a size of production like this, uh, like I would make a decision. The very same way the director wouldn't accept this 100%. So it was a no-win situation. So this was the way to do it. I, I talked to Joe when I don't talk to Joe, but it looks like I am on the telephone and uh, um, this is what you have to do. They figured it out, but it doesn't matter what they figured that out, they had no proof that Joe is totally out. And uh, we finished what, what had to be finished for the first round. Suzanne is able to get through the shoot this way. And the shoot has everything. Concert scenes, crowd scenes, John Reeves-Davies channeling Robert Shaw from Jaws, Oscar winner Louise Fletcher, lots of people talking about the bear, it even had the first scenes ever filmed of Charlie Sheen, Laura Dern, and George Clooney. All three, who had been hired for their famous last names, had small roles of horny teenagers who end up as bear food. It had everything, except the bear scenes. The mechanical bears never got working again, and reportedly might still be in Hungary to this day. They were to be shipped over to the UK, but never arrived. They had been seized by the Hungarian authorities over some unpaid debts left over from the Grizzly 2 shoot and haven't been heard from since. Suzanne and Grizzly 2 director André Jatz take their footage and head to Paris. The plan is to put together a rough cut, bring that rough cut to Los Angeles, and make a deal to finish the picture. So what happened is Joe shows up in Paris when we were... Editing the film. Okay, wait, wait. I just want to understand something. You haven't heard from this guy, and now you're you finished the movie. You had to take it on yourself, and you're editing it in Paris. And he just unannounced, just kind of shows up out of nowhere. No, he wasn't unannounced. It later on, it turns out he talked to like a a, a French Hungarian director who was actually doing the film. And he talked to the banker and he talked to everybody. He just didn't talk to me ever. And when I arrived to Paris, he's there. And I said, what are you doing here? He said, what are you doing here? This guy is something else. So Joseph Ford Proctor is now back in the picture. Suzanne doesn't really have any recourse here other than to play nice with him since he does have a contract. They put together whatever footage they have and head to L.A. And they meet with Arnold Copelson, who is a legit big deal producer and distributor. So we go to L.A., all of us. And Arnold, uh, we, uh, we are in Arnold's uh, home in Beverly Hills. 
and we are showing the film for him. Ten minutes later, he stops the movie and he says, this movie does not make any sense. The movie is not coherent. Come back with this movie when when you have a movie. Right now you don't. Joe says, well, is there any way you can help us to complete? And he says, Joe, you should complete this movie and come back when you can. So we come, come out from this meeting. The director is completely collapsed. Needless to say, L.A. does not go well for the Grizzly 2 crew. And Suzanne figures if she's ever going to get this thing finished, she needs to get rid of Joseph Ford Proctor once and for all. And she has a way to do it. And I said to the director, listen, we would be history and out of this movie with whatever was done. You need to sue my company and stop the movie so the movie is not going to leave Europe. Because if the movie leaves Europe until we make a new agreement or I make a new agreement with Joe that uh, the positions are cleared, since I already forgave him and went on with this presentation, the only way this would work if we have a new contract, he gave us a new contract, give me a new contract, and then we try to salvage this field. The big idea is to have director Andre Jatz sue Joe Proctor and Suzanne over the movie, and eventually this could break the contract and get Proctor out. Then Suzanne could move forward with getting it finished on a new deal she makes for the movie. Have you got all that? I know. It's a very complicated thing, and I'm an economist originally. So I, I, I also studied international law. So I knew my position. If I don't get a new contract, Joe admitting his shortfall and the fact that that I finished and what is the position and what's going to be, then what would happen, the, the redoing the contract never happened. And years goes by, uh, everything stopped. My company was sued. I never went to the trial. So I defaulted. The Eclair Lab uh, put a lien on the film because I was uh, the contact with Eclair Lab. What she's now talking about is a different lawsuit. Yes, it was a different lawsuit because I was sued in this case. I was the one sued by uh, the French director that his position and his uh, situation is not secured by my company and by this film, and he, in Europe, you know, a, a director has uh, artistic control and artistic rights. That's not the case in United States. So he created this uh, situation that his artistic control is in jeopardy. And so the movies got stuck there, and then he was waiting for me to do a deal with Joe. That never happened. And with all these lawsuits going on, you might be wondering what Joseph Ford Proctor is going to do about all this. So I tried to find out through a Chicago law firm who said, we don't know where he is. And then all of a sudden, 1985, I find out 
that he is in he is in Singapore and is chased by South Koreans because Joe wanted to sell an electric car. He is no longer interested in this film. He is no longer interested in de- dealing with anybody. He is selling electric cars. Now, I have to say, selling electric cars in 1985 is a pretty bold move. But this means that Suzanne finally has what she wants. Joseph Proctor is out. And by the time all the lawsuits and new contracts are done, it's 1987. So Suzanne finally has control of the picture and can move forward. Or so she thinks. Finally, first time, I have full control. And I try to talk to the director. At that time, the director says, now, wait a minute. I have full control over the film, not you. So I said, what are you talking about? He says, I, you remember, I am the creative guy now. And I want you to do what I tell you to do. Andre Jatz is now playing for keeps over the fate of Grizzly 2. And Suzanne feels like Jatz is not the guy to get this done. She feels his sensibilities are too European, and since this is a typical American exploitation film, it's not really going to work. But she's also not sure if she really wants to fight him over this. What do I do? So in 89, my husband uh, got cancer. And, of course, my job was is that uh, I, I have to be with my family. And um, he passed away in 1990. And 1990, I had a choice. What do I do? I take over our family successful art gallery, or I go into a venture with this unknown, with the, the director's complicated mental case. And I, I had a daughter who was 11 years old at that time. So I decided that I'm going to take over the gallery. I was a big uh, uh, art collector anyway. And I, I first get my house in order, my immediate house. Suzanne eventually remarries and stays mainly working in the art business, keeping Grizzly 2 on the back burner. And the art business is going great. She opens another gallery. And then I open my own auction house that I was selling big volume of, let's say, I would say 10,000 and below 10,000 volume of artworks. So very busy. But she still does make attempts to get Grizzly 2 finished. She even had Sam Sherman, a well-known B-movie filmmaker, come in and try to get it done. So Sam and I met through a Wall Street group that uh, wanted to help me to to get this grisly movie done. I think they introduced me to Sam. And I gave them VHS uh, cassette at that time. Remember that we, we used to work with those cassettes. Right? And he looked at it and he, he wanted to finish this film. We had several meetings. He, as as I, I understand, he went to a zoo to find a bear, a living bear. And then he also talked to somebody who is dealing with a trained bear that would be the perfect, uh, perfect uh, way to actually create bear scenes. 
And then uh, he one time uh, uh, told me he decided not to do it. What Sam Sherman wanted to do was going to cost money, and there was still some legal wrangling to do with director Andre Jatz. So instead of Grizzly 2, Suzanne mainly stayed in the art business. I would assume what happened is that he started to work with the legal aspect of this movie and decided this is not what he needs. But a very nice guy, by the way. In 2006, Jatz passed away. But Suzanne still wasn't interested in revisiting the movie. Not yet. She wanted to wait until she was in a position financially that she could finish the movie on her own. So I said, I'm going to do the film, then I can spend the money without any problem. And if the movie is a biggest flop and never makes a penny, I will be fine. I, I need to do it for myself. So 2018... I looked around uh, at the industry, what's going on. Everything is digital at that time. I said, perfect. I'm going to put it, transfer the movie, which was in very bad condition, but it was good enough condition to uh, really see what is really what I need to do with this film. And I got the conversion in United States and in my gallery, I convert, I, one of the room became an editing room. And just like that, Suzanne is now editing Grizzly 2. And it's in the editing process that she realizes she's short about 17 minutes. Now, this is 17 minutes that was never filmed. So things like the bear eating people at the concert and the triggering event that sets the grizzly bear off on the rampage to begin with. Suzanne can either go out and film these missing 17 minutes herself or maybe there's another way. So the idea was either we go on, voc- on, on location and I purchase a couple of crowd scenes uh, coming to concert, etc. Or I just start to purchase uh, film clips and fill up the gaps. And that's what I ended up doing. I, I purchased 17 minutes of millions of clips. I mean, probably I used up 50,000 clips to be able to come up with all of the missing scenes, what was missing in the movie, to be able to make a coherent story. That why, number one, this is taking place. Number two is because you don't see the gigantic bear. We needed to use a different angle and insert bear faces and others, which is from a clips. It's not from the movie, from, from the original movie. We only filmed the movie one the first day and never after. So the whole thing had to make believable that this is, this is happening. She hires a professional editor to help get all these clips in. And finally, over 35 years later, Grizzly 2 is completed. And somewhere in the span of those 35 years, cult movie lovers had found out about the movie with George Clooney, Laura Dern, and Charlie Sheen being killed by bears that had never been released. Somewhere in the aughts, a work print of the movie had found its way online, and the legend of Grizzly 2 had somehow gotten out. In 1983, Grizzly 2 just would have been another cheap horror movie. But now it had grown into a genuine curiosity. 
And with the movie finished, Suzanne had decided to enter it into a few film festivals to drum up some more interest. The first thing we were in the Los Angeles Film Festival. It was uh, 2020, February, and um, uh, we went there. I came back on 28th. Great, wonderful. Uh, we were going to the next festival, next festival. Boom, COVID came. You probably saw that one coming, didn't you? I know. But even COVID can't slow down Grizzly 2. But the lucky thing was that we were able to go into the Cannes Film Festival online, where there was, I, I came out from the festival with seven contracts because I, when all of a sudden the distribution heard that Grizzly, uh, they wanted to see the movie, we sent them the movie, and then uh, by the time oh, won the movie, and I had seven contracts. Here's how much things had turned around. In 1983, Arnold Copelson had completely dismissed the movie within 10 minutes. In 2020, distributors lined up to get a piece of it. Eventually, she signed a deal with Gravitas Ventures for distribution and a deal with Showtime. And right now, there's probably one question that you have on your mind. What happened to Joe Proctor? In 2015, he wrote me, a very kind, lovely, loving letter that I, I screwed up. I can now set up the whole production, finish the film, and make it up for, for you. Let's make this deal what, what he didn't make, uh, make this, uh, this time. And I, I said, Joe, I wrote back in 2015, pay me $2 million and take the movie from me. Never answered that. <laughs> that is the last time Suzanne has heard from him. But his story is a long and complicated one. And unfortunately, he's not interested in telling it to anyone. Here's what I know. After the Jerry Lewis episode, but before Grizzly 2, he had attempted to sell the town of Michigan, Indiana, a machine that could turn garbage into oil. When town officials found out about his past with Jerry Lewis, the deal was gone, and so was Proctor. Next, he was with Grizzly 2, and then he was in Korea selling electric cars, and then he was in Singapore for some reason, wound up in prison in Thailand for a couple of years for cheating a company out of $7 million, came back to the United States after prison, and wound up in prison again, this time in 2012, for tax evasion. He was sentenced to five years and was released in 2015. For Suzanne, just having the picture finally finished and released has given her a sense of almost relief. Maybe closure is a better word. Yes, it's a closure. It is absolutely a closure. And keep in mind, this is very much her story. Andre Jatz is no longer with us. David Sheldon turned down my invitation to talk about this. And Joseph Ford Proctor has unplugged his phone. So we are only getting Suzanne's version of things. And in her version, this picture has had a happy ending. It's a success, enough of one that she's actually had offers to do Grizzly 3. And while she's not really interested in that, she is still interested in making movies. She currently has an idea that she's working on. But honestly, I think I have a better idea. Okay, so here's a suggestion, and I'm going to guess you've already heard the suggestion before. Yes. But the, the movie that I think you should make is the story you just told me. 
Yes. That is the movie that you should make. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of The Industry presented by Movie Maker. Visit moviemaker.com for great podcasts, articles, and information about movies. If you love movies, you want to make them, or maybe you're a movie maker yourself, there's something for you at moviemaker.com. You can sign up for the newsletter. You can subscribe to the magazine. There's just a lot there. Go check it out. This episode was written and edited and hosted by me, Dan Delgado. Special thanks to my only guest, Suzanne Nagy. Suzanne has written an ebook about her adventures with Grizzly 2 called Swimming Among Sharks, the story behind the making of Grizzly 2 Revenge, which I should point out is the official title of the movie. Links to all the sources used for this episode and anything else I can think of is going to be found at my website, industrypodcast.org. There's a number of articles out there going over the Grizzly 2 story. The best one I've come across is by Brian Rafferty over at The Ringer. It's called What Do George Clooney, Nazareth, and a 16-Foot Mechanical Bear Have in Common? And I'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Music in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. If you really enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you can leave a review. You know, it's it's just a nice thing to do. You can also feel free to tell a friend or two about it. That's also a nice thing to do. And if you've really enjoyed this episode, you can buy me a coffee by going to my website, industrypodcast.org, and clicking the Buy Me a Coffee button. If you'd like to contact me, you can. Maybe you have a show idea. Maybe you think I've overlooked something. Or maybe you just want to say hi. You can email me. It's dan at moviemaker.com. I'm also on Twitter at the industry 13 Instagram at industry underscore podcast and Facebook at the industry pod. Thanks again for listening. And I'll be back again soon with another story of the things that went on in the industry. Be good.